This episode of Generally Famous discusses suicide. If you or anyone you know needs help with their mental health, a range of organisations are available. They include the 1737 service, which offers free access to a trained counsellor, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Just call or text 1737. Kia ora aotearoa and welcome to Generally Famous, a stuff podcast. I'm Simon Bridges and every week I talk to a generally famous but always interesting guest about life, love and what makes them tick. Today, the boy from Te Awamutu who's done good in the kitchen, celebrity chef and restaurateur, Ben Bailey. Welcome. Thank you. That's right, isn't it? Te Awamutu? That's it. That beautiful part of New Zealand. Yeah, I was born in Te Awamutu. Yeah, you're not. I didn't intend to do that actually, but that's that's what yeah. I think of. And um, that would have I think I read somewhere about you. You know, you weren't emotionally scarred growing up there. You you, it was cows and surfing. Well, pretty much, yeah. We um, <clears throat> we spent a lot of time in Wangamata and Raglan, so definitely got the surfing yep. in. But it's it's a it's an interesting part of New Zealand. It's yep. um, I mean, it's it's beautiful and um. I, I loved it, but at the same time, when I finished um, Te Amaru College, I, I couldn't wait to get out of there. Like, yeah, <clears throat> that was a big part of it. But just, small, yeah, small. And and I've been I've been back down a lot recently, and um, <clears throat> again, I, I I love the Waikato, and um, but it's doing what I do now. I could I could never open a restaurant in the Waikato. Do you know what though? That said, I bet it'd go mm. really well. I it, bet you'd make some dollars. There's some dollars in the Waikato. Yeah, there is, but it's just sleepy. So, yeah. you know, you, you sort of, if you want to have a restaurant at a certain level, you you often alienate a lot of the population. So you, you sort of, you know, you need to have a population that that really understands like what dining is, if that makes sense. And it's and it's not, it's no shade on the Waikato. You know, <clears throat> people are in bed pretty early. Like you walk down the main street of Hamilton. Well, Tauranga too. Yeah, it's yeah, Tauranga. Where yep. I've spent 20 years. Yeah. You, it's a great place, great for the outdoors. But I tell you what, go for a walk at 8.45 p.m. It's, it's, and there's no lights on. I know. It's crazy. And there's no restaurants. It's got yeah. better though. Both of them. Are, yeah. I just want to defend them briefly because I can feel emails coming from, I know I've got mates in both areas that read them. Um, when I first lived in Tauranga in sort of early 2000s at the Mount and you'd walk down um, Monganui, Mount Monganui Road, you could fire a machine gun down there in the middle of the year, right? Like in, in, in about this time of year, there was no one. But it, it is better than that now. And there are some great dining establishments yeah. in both places. Mm. Yeah, the, the Mount's pretty cool, that main strip, I think. Yeah. You know, that sort of pumps a little bit. But, you know, like... I mean, even Auckland's pretty small, like yes. on the world stage for restaurants. Um, but you, you need to be serving customers sort of from five o'clock right through till till ten o'clock, really, yes. to make it work. And yes. so it's it's no shade; it's just like a financial reason. Um, yeah, you know? it doesn't have the the scale probably. Yep. And I'm going to do one shout. None of this was thought, but. Um, you know, I've got friends, um, Noel and Kim, who have uh, they got the Clarence. They've got a great Italian one at the Mount. Actually, they've got one in Cambridge. Who's uh, Alpino? Come. Yeah, they did a great job. Yeah, shut up. Um, so, uh, so, so, really good. Um, I was going to ask you if you'd been back to Tiawamutu recently. Um, and I, I suspect I know your um, your answer now. But any good restaurants? And if not, would you? Would you? You'd never open one, is what I think I've, I've established. Yeah, I, I never would. No, there's Red Kitchen's really good. The readout's good for a beer. Um, you know, Alpino and Cambridge I've been to. You know, there's some some good little joints. You could call it like um 
food experience growing up? What what was did, did mum do a good um yeah, good I reckon, roast or yeah, what was yeah, she? 100%. Your mum was really adventurous actually. She would um we would uh go, you know, crab fishing off the Wangamata wharf Amazing. and she'd cook crabs which was you know, paddle crab, which was kind of unheard of. Um, she'd eat sardines, sprats, would catch sprats and she'd eat them, which was just normally cat food. Um, she'd do stuff like pineapple chicken, which I loved. Um, you know, dad's the king, the king of the wiener snitchel with uh, cauliflower <laughs> cheese, which, I, which every time I go to dad's, I'm like, man, can you make that? I and love a wiener yeah. schnitzel. It was fantastic. Yeah. So there were those Pork sort of or beef. Uh, always have beef. To be, right. You know, classically, it's veal, but you know. Yes, but and I saw your show on that. We don't actually have enough veal in New Zealand, given all the the cows and the bobby calves. Oh, well, a lot of them go to pet food, right? The bobby calves, and well, there's not a lot of bobby calves anyway because of you know the artificial insemination of right. of you know that I think they're pretty good at <clears throat> making sure that a lot of female you know animals are born, but. You know, it still is, a, in my opinion, a missed opportunity. And yes. I mean, that episode on uh, season two of Food Story, um, you know, Alan there is really just, you know, excuse the pun, take, taking the bull by the horns and, and, and raising these young male animals. And, you know, the meat is beautiful. Oh, it's wonderful. Um, and it gives them a bit of life. Masala. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, beautiful. yeah, yeah. Um, Blanquette de Vaux. And, by, and speaking of all of this, I, I'm sorry to go back, but I'm salivating at the. Mm. I'll tell you what I'd go for. At Ahi is a um is some sardines on toast. Yes. Done well. That would be bloody terrific. I haven't had that since a child. I know. Well, do you know, have you ever seen that brand, the salty dog uh, you know, bait that you buy in the service station? Yes, yes. That guy apparently goes out, he's an old fellow and he he goes out in Fongaray every now and again and um you know, the problem is he just doesn't go out that often and you'll catch a whole lot of sardines. And then the really good ones, he'll snap freeze and that's what we buy. And then the ones, the rest of them go to bait. So again, like a missed opportunity, you've got this beautiful product um, that often in New Zealand is um, just not seen as a premium ingredient. Where You go anywhere in the Mediterranean, sardines are just, you know, well, fabulous. Fish, and they're fish, you know, I mean... Um not, I've done a whole lot of this. I need to do a lot more of it. But, you know, in the Mediterranean, they, 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 they get these fish, they're little piddlers. I know. They're the undersize in New Zealand. They yep. go out to the Sea of Galilee or wherever it is they yeah. are, and then and, and their fish are about sort of, you know, um, a handful of centimetres as opposed to the big oh, yeah. boys and girls. We sort of um, – what would you do with a sardine if you had that at um, Ahi? Well, I think, you know, filleting it and just really kiss it on the, on the char grill over the fire, really, really hot. So sort of one side gets seared and the other side is still raw. Mm. Um, I think one of the yummiest things, I've just crumbled feta over it, a bit of pine nuts and some maybe some raisins that have been soaked in some sort of wine and, you know, make a little dressing out of that. I think that sort of thing's quite nice. So you've got a bit of sweet and a little bit of lemon juice on there, a bit of lemon zest. Oh, you know? I love it. Yeah. Amazing. Very good for you too. Oh, so good for you. I'd... I'd I'd look almost as muscly as you do, Ben. <laughs> if we, I just seen a Ben earlier off the air that, you know, but I think it's the new way. You know, I, I grew up, I can remember my father saying, never trust a skinny chef. And you, you know, you, 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 you looking good. I mean, I, it's the same before I me, mean, Josh Emmett, some of these other guys, he's a rake. I know. You well, guys need to dip your finger in the pudding bowl more. I know. I think Josh runs marathons. I, I work out every morning. I've just learnt that. Um, you probably have to, do you? Oh, it's seriously. just, I've got to got to blow that ADHD off somehow. And, yeah. and I, I think I'm just more level throughout the day. 
and I'm happier. Um, and I think, you know, when you're really busy, you get so busy that you don't look after yourself and you got, you're like, what am I doing all this for? If, if I don't have the time to invest in myself, like if I don't have the time to give myself one hour every morning, um, then, then, then you've got a problem, I think. And so I've got an amazing boxing trainer in Tithrangi. So I do a box and then I've got a, um, uh, underhouse boxing, amazing dude. And then, um, you know, I've got a, an amazing trainer called Phil Kingy and, and he, you know, sorts out all those, you know, you get to mid forties and you from playing rugby when you're younger and you end up with all these bloody injuries that you've yes. never really dealt with. And so it's less That's my excuse, Ben. Yeah. Well, there you go. But it's sort of less about like becoming muscly. It's more or, you know, it's just be a, a mental thing. And then, I'm big on the longevity yeah, physically yep. because, you know, in your 40s now, I think you really need to look after your body yep. because I want to be a, you know, good granddad and I want to yep. be an active person when I'm older and totally. because you, you work hard and you, you might put some money in the bank, but you might not have the health to enjoy it later no, down absolutely. the track. And, and I think um, I th- someone was saying to you, weights and, and the like, um, they are, that's basically what they're about, right? They'll keep you living longer, the best um antidote to that. So um, so anyway, well, we've established amongst many other things and how we do sardines, and that sounds delicious, um, <laughs> that you weren't scarred from growing up in, in, the, in the cooking, and you probably got a bit of a sort of a sense of pedigree from that and what, what happened then that you take forward? Yeah, I think so. I had a I had a, an amazing um, uh, economics teacher at Taumaru High School, and, and uh, Mr. Hockley, and he was, I was like fifth form, and he was sort of saying, you know, what do you want to do with your life? Um, and I said, oh, gee, I really like cooking. I wouldn't mind being a chef. And this guy was an amazing teacher. You know, he rang up the local restaurant and got me a job or he got me a stage, like an internship at a restaurant in, in Te Amuru. It's It's gone now, but it was called Taylor's Restaurant. And he goes, right, if you want to be a chef, I've rung – he didn't tell me, he asked me. He just said, I've, I've rung the restaurant and the chef has agreed to take you on for one week in the holidays for free and you're going to go work for free. And so um, I went off and did that and um, loved it and <clears throat> they gave me a job washing dishes. And so mum and dad didn't have a lot of money. So if you wanted the, you know, the Billabong T-shirt or whatever, had you to know, do that. I had to go and yeah. do it. And and. So I got $8 an hour washing dishes and I washed um, dishes on Thursday night after rugby practice and then I'd fall asleep in class on um, on Fridays and then I'd play rugby on Saturday morning and, and then I'd wash dishes till, till late on, on Saturday night. And it was, it was sort of like the best introduction to kitchens because, mm. you know, hygiene is so important. You know, like a, a good chef should spend, you know, 30% of his day cleaning really. I mean, if you... If you if if you're not hygienic, you you know you're going to make people sick essentially. So, um, and you know the the food won't last as long and, and and all that sort of stuff. And and you learn how to work. You learn how to work fast. Um, the chefs loved me because I just like got stuck in and and smashed out these dishes and all the buffet stuff would come back and they'd go on a break and I'd I'd see all these dishes. There was a they had two dishwashing areas, one for all the pots and pans and trays, and then another area for all the plates and cutlery and they'd go on a break in the afternoon and it was sort of like, I was like, right, I'm in the kitchen by myself. When they get back, all these dishes are going to get done. And so I'd smash the pots and then I'd go over there and then uh, do the do the plates and the cutlery and and then they'd be coming back from their afternoon break and I'd, you know, I'd just be mopping the floors and it was sort of like a, a bit of a game, you know, like I, I had to get that done. And 
And it installed like a really good work ethic in Definitely. me as well. I think it's better to start at the back and move your way forward than but go try and get to the front and be told to go to the back. So uh, I know, and but yeah. now dishwashers that, or we call them KPs, kitchen porters, when they start at the restaurants, they're some of my f- most favourite people. Yep. And a lot of chefs these days have never done their time in the in the plonge. Um, the plonge is the the you know the dishwashing sink in French. Um, plonger means to dive, so they they get called divers because they're in the sink all day. Yeah. And there's sometimes a lack of respect for that yeah. position. Yeah. And um, the people doing those jobs are just the most wonderful people. And and I always say that they're, they're the most important person mm. in the restaurant. If these guys didn't show up to work, would be in the shit. What sort of food was this, uh, the Taylor's restaurant serving? Oh, you know, it was, um, they did the big buffets, a lot of weddings. Yes. Um, you know, all those you know ham on the bone buffets and all that Brilliant. sort of stuff. And they had the shrimp cocktails. And yeah, good. All those sort of things Wonderful. that you love. No, nothing wrong with that. Um, and then you were, a chef, if we cast forward a bit, you're a chef in the Waikato. Have I got that right? For yeah, while? yeah, yeah. So I went to Waikato Polytech. Yep. Um, did a did a full time first year course there, and then I was like, ah, oh, I, I I got another job in, in Hamilton at Rustichia, a really good restaurant there at the time, and um, just started working with sort of. I, I had some really good advice at a young age, and that was sort of from a from a good chef, and he said to me. Wherever you're in the world or whatever city you're in, just try to find out the best restaurant in the area and go work for them. And I really, and he said, do that to your 30 and then become a head chef. Yes. And so I got that advice sort of, you know, at, good advice. at 18. And yeah. so I went around basically from city to city working in the best restaurant available. And, um, and, and that was sort of, that was sort of that secret that I learned and, and being s- I think there's nothing like in those those twenties getting good. I, I I don't like this word, but it's it's sort of the accurate one. Mentoring, right? Hundred percent. Even it's just seeing, even if they're not very good mentors, you know what the best are doing. It's true in law. It's true in a bunch of other um 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 things as well. And so you know, on that, you're in France, Italy, and the UK, and you're at Michelin star restaurants. Yes, yeah, pretty much most of the time. Um, what were some of the names of those? So. I went to Auckland first. I worked at a place called Essence, and that had one restaurant of the year. There was a, um, a very good chef called Martin Hyling was the head chef, and then Michael James was the Kiwi chef who owned it. And and from there, I um, went to work. I got an opportunity to work at the Sydney Olympics. So I didn't really have a lot of money, so I got paid a you know shit ton of money to go to the good. Sydney Olympics for a couple of weeks, and they they paid for my flight over, and then I just never came home. So I'd flown down to Melbourne. Uh, and I worked with a, or he's super famous now, it's George Columbaris and Gary Megan off MasterChef Australia. Mm. Um, right before that, I'd won a, a scholarship to, I'd won a cooking competition. US, was it? Yeah. yeah. So it was my first time overseas. I'd won a Kami Chef of the Year, which is like, Kami Chef is like a, a junior chef uh, in New Zealand. And the prize was to, to go to this uh, culinary university in Providence, Rhode Island. And a lot of the other, you know, 16 young chefs from around the world had won the same competition and, and we all got to hang, like hang out there. And uh, George Columbaris was one of, was the Australian guy that won it. So we became friends. Um, I went home, <clears throat> got the opportunity to go to, to Sydney Olympics and then just flew down to Melbourne and started working there. And that was a real sort of baptism of fire. That was, it was an amazing restaurant, um, very busy. Uh, and it was um, sort of my first time in a in a really serious place. Mm. Um, so, two years in Melbourne, and then um, I moved to Las Vegas of all places. I got a job oh. there at Bellagio, 
And um, so I was sort of, what, 22? And um, at first I was in this, uh, um, you know, the kitchen's broken up into brigades, so different areas. And so in a massive hotel, bear in mind there was 10,000 staff at Bellagio. So that was sort of more than the population of Te Aumuru. And, you know, the, <laughs> the, the staff canteen of Bellagio was called La Manja. And La Manja, you know, cooked for all these staff that were working. There was 80 chefs working in the staff canteen. Um, so, you know, there was just an, an extraordinary amount of humans um, at Bellagio there. And I worked at first in a place called the Garmage. The Garmage in, in French means like the cold section. So we had sort of like 80 chefs in there as well. Um, we would do all the food for, um, you know, huge banqueting. So, you know, uh, General Motors would come and have their AGM at Bellagio and there'd be like 2,000 people, breakfast, lunch and dinner for, you know, three days. So we'd, you know, do the cold part of the breakfast, like we'd plate up 2,000 fruit plates. But first you had to order the fruit and then we had to cut the fruit, you know, peel the fruit, cut the fruit, plate it up, rack it up. They'll be done the day before and then there'd just be like huge cold rooms of hundreds of jack stacks full of hundreds of plates and and then that would get served in these huge banqueting areas. It's it's hard to really articulate how big the place is. You know, there was you don't order from external suppliers, you order from like basically a massive warehouse downstairs and you'd order up lobster and there'd be they'd be holding three thousand lobsters in the yeah. hotel it's at just, one time. It's, it's an exercise in massive logistics. Yeah, isn't it? huge. And then you're Am I right, France? Yeah, so from there, um, I, I, you know, I had a green card pending. Um, so I could have stayed in America forever and, and, and still be living there to this day. But uh, I, I really wanted to, um, you know, work in some really great restaurants, especially in Europe. And um, my, well, my wife now, but my girlfriend at the time, she was finishing university in, in New Zealand and she had moved to London and we're sort of having this long distance on again, off again relationship. So Cara, my wife now, and so she had moved to London. So I was like, oh, I'm waiting for my green card anyway. Um, I'll go to London for like, see how it is for six months. And um, so went to London and, and ended up at a restaurant called The Square. It's two Michelin star, uh, Phil Howard was the chef. Um, and it was, it was sort of like the Marines in there, like the SAS of, of cooking. It was... Um, even a step above what you'd been doing. Oh, miles. But that was mm. like, London was the real, mm. like that. People the, are a bit mean. To be, I mean, London to me is, there is some of the best dining in the world. A hundred percent. It's definitely an epicenter. So you probably have like New York, Chicago, um, London, you know, Madrid, those sort of places, Correct. Paris. And, yeah. and it's sort of, you know, you have that population of tourism or, 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 um, you know, of, of wealth that really demand Correct. that level. And, but when I say like SAS, you know, you got that discipline. Um, but we have, they had the discipline around the standards of food that you were cooking. Like the, the food was just exceptional, but the discipline around behavior and about, about what you wore. And it was just like a bunch of pirates really, you know, and um, it's it really bizarre uh, culture, very aggressive, um, super long hours, like, and, and I'm not exaggerating, you know, you're working 16 hours a day. Um, you know, you're falling asleep on the, on the tube on the way to work in the morning and mm. you're falling asleep and miss your stop on the way home. 
But it is how you get your 10,000 hours or whatever so that yes. you really know yeah. what you're about. You yeah. come back and run some top restaurants and give back in New Zealand. Yeah, and I think like if you can, evo- if you can get through that time without um, the PTSD and the – and all yes. that sort of stuff, but and I always say to the young guys, you know, you can you can work forty hours a week if you want, but if you work if you work sixty, you're going to learn so much faster. Yeah. And it is a time on task thing, cooking. And yes. um, I'm not sure how you know the employment law works in New Zealand, but they yes. don't like you working more than you know. Yes. It's, but people that work really hard, I mean, it's how you learn. Yeah, I I think so. But then you know, I would I I, I think you know um, those twenties, even early thirties, you know, they're the time to really make pay if you want to. Have a um, significant career. If you don't, that's cool. But don't don't complain when you're 53 and you're twiddling your your bow. Hey, um, are those Michelin star restaurants? I mean, are they just so much better? And if so, why? I think I think um, we've had people come to Ahi and say uh, that you know a restaurant in Auckland say, oh, you you know you're a one star, you could be a two star or whatever. But you know, I think. It's it's a rating that's um, judged by, you know, the Michelin Tire Company, and I, I believe the history is is that the Michelin Guide was created as a as a tourism guide for people who were purchasing tires, and then it just morphed into this system where it was just the most recognised uh, form of restaurant judging in the world. These days, you know, if New Zealand wanted to have Michelin stars. You know, the government would need to, or part of tourism would need to bring these guys out and pay them. Yes. Um, you know, it's a racket. It, it, well, it feels like it. It's just not available in in every country, and yes. I mean, Australia doesn't have it. Um, some countries in Asia have it, and some don't. Um, America has it, but not in all places. Just in the epicenters of food. Uh, so, it's really sort of like if it's recognised as a feather in the cap for a city or for a country, then it's not. You know, they won't come for no reason, you know. I mean, I suppose I sit there and say, yeah, cool. And, you know, I've been to some and it's, it's an experience. But, you know, I, I, I'd i kind of, you know, if I think about France, you know, maybe there's something in just being at that nice bistro and having a stew. Oh, 100%. As opposed to some reconstituted something with smoke and whistles and, you know, a, a pureed small blob that they've spent four hours on. Mm. Um, your, your sardine, we talked about, that wouldn't cut it, would it? Oh yeah, could do. Yeah, could absolutely. do. Yeah, if you did yeah, it right. yeah. I think as you go through like um, like a Bibgomon, which is the the entry level thing, and then you go one star, two star, three star. I mean, when you're talking about say like a three star, they'll be looking at the size of the table you're dining on. They'll be looking at the to- the bathrooms. You know, they'll be looking at um, you know, a show plate down and the table when you sit down. They'll be looking at the flower arrangements. They'll be looking at um how the sommelier moves and, yes. you know, th- there's like so much more to the experience than just the food, but the food is obviously the most important thing, but mm. it might be 50, 60% of the judging. Um, and then, you know, if the chef, you know, he they, they're very particular about giving a, a two-star chef a th- three stars. If they don't want to give someone a three-star and then, you know, next year they not, don't retain it. So no. they're sort of looking at um, – how stable the guy is, you know, you know, that's as much as I understand. There's a, there's a really great book called The Perfectionist. Um, and it's a, it's a book about this, um, French chef called Bernard Loiseau who had three mission stars, he had it for, for years. Oh, and he gave years. them away, didn't he? Was no, he, he actually was so stressed out about losing one. He, he killed himself. Oh, terrible. And, um, it's a terrible story of pressure and, um, um, and it's an amazing book about 
really about understanding the difference between striving for excellence and striving for perfection because mm. perfection is something you never achieve. No. And, and so that's another great book for people to read, especially in the industry um, who are very determined and very driven and, and stuff like that because, um, you know, that he had such a great fear of not having his three stars. He, he had mental health issues as well, obviously, mm. but um, – you know, it turns out that that restaurant, I think, I'm not sure if it still has it now, but at the time of the book coming out, a few years on, it still had its three stars. The head chef took over and his wife. And um, so, yeah, it was, in that book, it really lays out how they, um, how they, how the Michelin guide judge. And, and it was a super interesting read. Interesting, very sad. I mean, I, I um, came across one, it was a guy who had stars, I forget the name of it, and, uh, you know, decided to give them away because actually getting more out of sort of not being in that that, that pressure cooker. Yeah. Um, what did you, you came back to New Zealand, obviously, what did you learn um, from that that period, would you say? I mean, that's a big question, but what, what do you kind of say you brought oh, back from that, that top chefing experience? Yeah, I think, well, I learned a lot when I came home because I'd, sort of didn't really see myself as a Kiwi anymore. I'd been away for so long. And mm. um, when you watch all your mates go off on van tour in London or go to the Munich Beer Fest and, um, you know, do all these crazy things, and I was just investing in myself the whole time and trying to just be a sponge and, and, and learn as much as possible. But so when you're overseas, you're working, going from country to country, um, from Italy and France afterwards, after the London stuff, and um, – I was sort of looking at a couple of chefs like uh, Rene Rezepi in, in Noma and uh, in Copenhagen and, you know, Fran Adrian and um, in Spain. And they were really taking their own country's food to the next level. And then I sort of came home and I found myself um, cooking dishes or cooking food that I'd, or techniques that I'd learned over there. And, and I think the biggest thing was that what is New Zealand food? You know, yeah. like, you know, you, you you come home and you start cooking French or Italian or all this sort of stuff, or but you're going, well, what is what is our food culture? And but you have to sort of go away to to learn that and oh, to I wonder. Think you do to be you objective know? about where we are at and what we do. Yeah, and because uh, we just don't have this long history of of culinary excellence. You know, yeah. it's always been about. Um, you know, we're a country built on immigration, migration. Um, uh, you know, the food has, has really been a, a way for us to to fuel the machine or, you know, to intensively farm to export. And that's really what our food production has been about. And now these days, it's all about, you know, how do we, what is New Zealand food and, and what are New Zealand dishes and, and, and how do we um, give someone a, a really New Zealand experience when they come to our restaurants. And I think that was the biggest takeaway. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I thought you might say something that, like that because it seemed to me it is your story and what you're into, and, and rightly so, is, you know, that provenance, the produce, where it's from, you know, what's what's required of it. Coming back to, to, to Kiwi Land in New Zealand, you worked at the Grove, um, uh, you know, a, a top restaurant, and now you've got sort of well, five restaurants and a bar yeah. and, and counting. Um, and let, let's sort of run through them because I think they are interesting. I mean, the flagships, of course, <clears throat> Ahi, and I've been there a number of times. And, and Ahi's, of course, today for fire, fire um, cooking and fire in your bellies. Um, and, and and you say, you kind of just said it then, but, you know, you're answering there that question, what's New Zealand um cuisine really and that's a big question so you know what's the what's what's your answer to that that ahi's providing 
I, th- I think like, you know, I think maybe this is a question that might be answered in 50 years. I don't know. Right. Like, I, I think, you know, what is a New Zealand dish? I mean, people, you know, we fight over there. I always say we fight over the Australians for pavlova and all this sort of stuff. And I think maybe our most Kiwi dish is hangi, you know, mm. brought by Kupe like 800,000 years ago mm. to New Zealand. Love and it's a phenomenal it's like it's when you actually break it down, it's a phenomenal method of cookery, actually. Mm. And um, a lot of work, though. It's a lot of work, but at a level. But you think Maori, there was no Iron Age here. There's no mm. way of there's no pots and pans. There's you know, it's it's a great way to feed a lot of people. So it may take a long time to do, but it's it's a, it's almost like a spiritual process when you do yes. it, and 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 it just gives you such grounding. And and so I I guess like a lot of it comes down to. I think what I sort of discovered on the show, the a New Zealand food story, the show was actually born out of like, well, how can I open a New Zealand restaurant? How can I um, understand what our food culture is better if I'm, I'm stuck in the kitchen? So we had this idea. Sweating your bollocks off in the kitchen. Yeah, I think yeah, I did say that. And it's true, you know, opening packets of lamb rack that have been vac packed. You don't know anything yes. about how the lamb's been looked after. and. Yes. Um, so to get out there and do that was just a fabulous opportunity. And then being able to, to actually film it too was brilliant because, you know, I'm not very good at writing down stuff or, you know, um, having a diary and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I write ideas for dishes down and stuff, but actually to film it is like the, a really great archive. You can just go back. And yes. It's also a great way to train our bloody staff, you know, because yes. they go, Look, go watch season one. And and so it's going out there. And, and I sort of came back and, you know, I guess after season one, I was sort of like, okay, it's, 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 it's New Zealand cuisine is, it's about the people and it's about the ingredients. And then you're going off to meet these people and they've, their journey they have undertaken to produce this truffle or, um, I don't know, this banana or, you know, all these, uh, some beautiful pork or their, their journey has been Amazing, and they've taken a similar journey to me, but just on a different parallel. And I ended up catching up with these people and realizing they're just like me, except for they they raise pigs. Or, and and there was such a connection there. And then talking to them about their 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 animal, or you know, you know, out in the ocean and spearing a butterfish and all these things, and all the white bait uh, at Awarua, and and it's it's it becomes more about this person than it does. A, a, and how they their journey they took to get there as much as it does about the ingredient itself. And so when you combine an experience of staying with someone and, you know, having a glass of wine with someone and going out and fishing with them and you just have such a deep understanding and then, the, you know, the creative process behind that to come up with a dish is so, so, so normal and, and, and holistic. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So, for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts. There's so much to talk about, it's going to be hard, but very quickly trotting through your restaurants, 
uh, you've got um, uh, Origine, which is classical French, um, and and they're in commercial bay as well. You've got the grounds out in the Waitakere's. That's a bit more accessible. I could have yeah. a um, – you, you've got the odd burger on the menu. Yeah, that's the Wagyu burger could joint. Chris, yeah. Could Chris Hipkins get a sausage roll at um, the grounds? We'll, we'll, we'll sort them out, yeah. And um, Iosta and Arrowtown are collab, as we like to say these days, with Sir Michael Hill. Um, around northern Italian food, just, I mean, briefly on that, um, how's northern Italian differ from, say, southern? I mean, they're, they're, what, they're wealthier, it's a bit colder, yep. um, it's more risotto and the like, is it? Have I- yeah, good. Yeah, it's a good question. I, so, uh, so in the south of Italy, I, I mean, the basic way to say it, they'll cook with olive oil. In the north, they cook with butter. You know, um, the the food the food of the north is a bit heavier. Mm. You know, it's um, they they grow great wine everywhere in Italy, but you know, they're, they're the big boy wines there and the Barbarescos and yes. all that sort of stuff and the Nebbiolos and. So, you know, risotto is um, the actual rice is sort of grown outside Milan. So if you ever take a train out of Milan and head north into the mountains, you'll see these um, on the horizon, just, you know, really flat area, just full of rice paddies. And so, you know, you know, the south is the tomatoes and the caprese salads and, and, and all this sort of stuff. And, and, and the north is um, all about the, the cheese and mm. the, the, the parmigiano and the, the, the cured meats and um, San Daniel. And so it's, a, it's, it's very different. If you look at Italy on the map, I mean, it looks kind of like New Zealand. I, I've, I flip, at Aosta, part of our branding is flipping New Zealand upside down and comparing it right next to Italy. And it looks right. very similar. You know right. what I mean? Yes. So the North Island yes. becomes the boot, like a bit yes. of a high heel. So it's, and then we have this 45th parallel that sort of runs through Central Otago and Northern Italy. And so I was, I actually had a bit of a year off cooking. Well, I still was cooking, but I went to Chamonix and was like, man, I'm so buggered of this cooking caper. I'm going to go to, go and live in the mountains in in France and, and do a bit of cooking, but focus on my, uh, my other passion, skiing, you know? And so I did that for a year, but we ended up in this little town called Aosta, which is just um, probably the smallest province of all of Italy and it's right in the top corner in the mountain and it's the Ulster Valley and it's got Kumayur ski field and uh, Chavinia and all these amazing places and so it's it's just a very very ancient town um, and I just fell in love with the place the oh. pasta and you know all the food there was just incredible I bet I've got to go there and you've got next to that little Ulster you've got the Blue Door Bar also in Arrowtown uh, just on that briefly what, what, what drink would you serve me up if I was there? Uh you know, I'd serve you probably a, a home grony, you know, like a Negroni made with all New Zealand ingredients yeah, or, amazing. you know, a whiskey from Cadrona, uh, you know, distillery. Oh, yes, very like good. That. Quite yeah. so they've got a strong one there. The, yeah. And, the, uh, and of course, you that, yeah, they do. too much of that to get yourself on the way. 100%. And there's obviously the, the wine from Central Otago is incredible as well. You've got the bathhouse. Um which, of course, is that everyone will know it, uh, Lake Wakatipu, right there on the shore next to the playground where your kids make you go whenever you're there. Um, and, and you can get oysters, bangers and mash. Um, the oyster and Wagyu burger, I, I think, looks pretty good. Mince on toast, I, I think oh, I yeah. saw on the menu. How do you make mince on toast, Chefy? Oh, God. I, you know, I um, I treat it like essentially like a bolognese. So I'll fry off um, like lots of garlic and, and like onions and time and I'd fry that off in olive oil and then um, I'd throw the mince in and I essentially would do it like a like like beef bourguignon but Mm. so I'd probably throw a bit of red wine in there and then a bit of um, like beef stock and 
and cook it out for ages. And so it wouldn't be like, a, it's not a quick process because when I have mince, I like to braise it. So it's sort of like, you know, miniature nuggets of braised beef versus, um, you know, just like a quick fry up like some people would do at home. Um, so yeah, it's like that. There might be some chopped tomatoes in there, something like that, depending on the season. And so definitely like a low and slow and actually like sometimes put in a casserole dish and flick it in the oven and, and cook it for a couple of hours in there, like 120 or real, real low temperature. So yeah, de- really deep flavored. And then, and then like a poached egg on top is always great. So mm, love a poached egg. Nothing wrong with a poached egg. The simple things. Um, I've got three general questions for you around sort of your restaurants and what's going on there. I mean, the first is, um, given the name of this podcast, generally famous. I mean, you have any standout famous people walk in? You're like, holy hector, that's oh, what's yeah, his yeah. face. Um, and I used to watch him in the 1970s when I was growing up. When I was a, this is probably a bit a bit left field, but. Um, you know, when I was at high school, we used to listen to a band called Tool. Yeah, yeah. And um, the lead singer Maynard came in to to the Grove, and my head chef and I were actually going to the concert the next night. And um, he came in and he ordered. He actually owns a vineyard in um, in America, and he's a real foodie, this guy. But he plays this music that's just like out the gate, like metal rock. And he came in, and um, my head chef and I literally just like freaked out. And um, we, we had these records, these vinyl records ready to go. Actually, we, when he came in, I actually sent, sent one of them home to get him. And we had them signed. Um, well, actually, I had three to sign and he goes, I'll sign one. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, obviously, they're worth a fortune if he signs it. Yes. And uh, so that was cool. And um, I had him sign the Undertow record, which was my probably my favorite record. And so, yeah, we've had those sort of um, – Pat Benatar came in once. Cool. And so when she was playing. You've um, just alienated about half the I know, right. because anyone under about sort of, I don't know, a certain age won't have any clue who she is. Yeah. But my, my brother actually bought me her greatest hits CD um, for Christmas or something. And I think, what the frick are you buying me that for? Do you think I'm sitting there? But yeah. it's cool. Yeah, we played that. What's that? Love is a Battlefield? Yeah, yeah we played. Yeah, she yeah. loved it. How's it go? Um, It's funny when you mention about, there's a lot of those metal rock American guys who do have vineyards. I know, they're crazy. Um, I went to, this is a bad story because I can't remember which one it was, but is it Hart or one of them? Anyway, I've I've got a bottle of their red wine somewhere at home that actually the American ambassador at the time uh, gave me, but there's a few of them. Oh, I mean. You know, from to, how would you like that? Yeah. I guess vineyards are funny. I mean, from what I – well, I heard a bit of an expression, how do you make a billionaire a, mil- a millionaire? Yeah, yeah. It's buy, wine, buy a vineyard. Yeah, yeah. totally <laughs> like, right. It's a good way. If you've got too much money, it's a good Unless way to Unless you really it. know what you're doing. Um, yes. Well, and, even, and even sort of then, no, very interesting. Look, second one um, around your question. How – and I don't mean – it's not a trick question, but how do you do justice <clears throat> to so many restaurants and bars and, and – what I mean is, you know, you're not there every time that mince on toast does go out. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, Jamie Oliver, for example, I can't remember who it was in, uh, somewhere in the UK, I've been to one of his restaurants, had a good time. But, um, you know, I think it ended badly in his case because actually, you know, Grow too big. you're the guy. Yeah. You're the one we want sort of, <clears throat> if not cooking for us, at least there a bit. It's, how do you make sure you've got quality going out the door? I think one thing I've, as I got older, I've, I've learned, how important culture is within a business. And so, and, and we, we've, you know, we still haven't got it right, but it was something we really think about a lot. And 
how do we inspire people to do a great job? And so, you know, we recruit, recruitment has become obviously really important and sort of employing on character, not on ability. And so <clears throat> there's a lot of stuff like that that we've worked through. A lot of the guys have been with me for a long time and I, I really try to invest in them as, as much as I can and inspire them and try to give them op- as many opportunities as possible. Like I'd never go around and say, you know, I'm cooking at Ahi every night because, you know, my best mate is the executive chef there, Mike, Mike Shatura, Mike the, Mike the Russian, his name is. And, you know, Mike and I have been working together nonstop for like, you know, 12 years. Yeah. And he's just a phenomenal human being. He's sort of got his own profile now. He's hilarious. He's creative. And I don't think that I'm his boss or anything. I just think that, you know, we're, we're like work colleagues in, in a way. And so, and it's the same with, with all the restaurants where you, you just build a relationship where of trust and, um, and you step in when you need to. Uh, I mean, Ahi's still the, the, I guess the, the flagship and stuff like that, but, and I, it's where I spend most of my time, but you know, like I think, um, I, I don't like being in one place all the time and I'm very grateful for this life I've carved out and, and I get to bounce around and variety is the spice of life, as they say, and I get to sort of visit all these places and they all serve different food. I get to hang out with different people. We, we employ quite a lot of people, about 160 at the moment. Amazing. And so, Big business. But it is difficult, you know. People do expect you to be there, but we're open for anyway, seven days lunch and dinner, so I can't be there every time anyway. So it's at like yes. Ahi or at, at Origin and Commercial no. Bay. But you do get that a lot and it's hard to scale yourself in a restaurant. You know, you're human beings serving human beings and um, you only can do however many covers per day. You, yes. It's it's hard to to grow. Got it. No, group. And look, um, I think one of the themes running through any talk with you, but, you know, that, that provenance, the produce, um, the producers locally, and, of course, something very interesting about you. I'm not aware of anyone else doing this. Maybe they do, but you – have organic gardens in South Auckland supplying exclusively to you. So it's organic, yeah. it's fresh. Uh, yeah, it's, it's. I mean, gee, uh, it's, a, it's a labor of love. Um, you can see why people don't do it, that's right. for sure. Like, it's, it's not easy being a, um, a vegetable grower and especially organic because, you know, you don't, you can't um, controlling pests like slugs when, you know, your seedlings are really small and the slugs invade, you know. Uh, and obviously with the weather patterns over the last year, mm, or, although it's been great to have a lot of rain, I mean, but then the weeds grow very quick too. And, right. and so you end up being a full-time so weeder. So why do you do it? Well, I, I think we had an opportunity to take over a, a, a garden from a really good friend of mine, Tamsin, who had a garden called The Secret Garden. And we were, she was supplying a few restaurants in Auckland and, and we were her biggest supplier. And for, for various reasons, she decided to give it away and she just offered it up to us. And so we leased the land off her out in Patumahawi, which is just a wonderful part of Auckland. And we have four acres there. And I guess the thing about having a garden is, is that if you've got a spare bit of land, you go, I'm going to make a really nice garden for the restaurant. So it will take you a couple of years to get the soil right. And, you know, huge amount of investment. So with when we took over from Tamsin, she had done all that legwork. So I can't, like, take the credit for that because we were producing vegetables the first day we took over, you know, so, and, and now like we're sort of two years in coming up and obviously with the, the summer that we've had or, or lack of summer and you realize that to produce enough vegetables to even supply a couple of restaurants is, is really hard and, and then diving into the financial side of that as well, like, um, and the transport costs and all this sort of stuff, it's, 
really, how, really hard to see how, how they make money. Hard. What, what, what are we getting each season? What are, what are we sort of, I mean, what's going on there now? What are we going on in summer? Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, right now we've got, um, the, the polytunnels are full of seedlings ready to be planted out. And then we've got sort of the last of our winter veg to be harvested. So we'll be finishing up carrots, turnips, um, you know, baby beetroots. We've got a, a really amazing lettuce called saltus that we're harvesting, um, uh, you know, so and then we'll be getting in the ground right now, sort of stuff like, um, uh, like all our all our leafy greens, um, uh, tomatoes are, are just the seedlings are are about sort of three inches high, so all those sort of you know when you say spring veg in New Zealand, I mean it's spring just run over spring now, but spring veg is when you plant the spring veg, and so they're pretty much will be ready at Christmas. So. It's a it's a it's a it's a real bugger of a thing because you actually got to plan six months out. Mm-hmm. You got to buy the seed. You got to first of all decide what you're going to do with it in six months or eight months time, and then you got to buy the seed, and then you got to um, plant them out in the polytunnels and look after them, and then you got to um, transfer that to the garden, and then you got to somehow the composting. Or oh, the good thing is, is that all our green waste from the restaurants now we compost yes. at the garden. So that's been a really so it's win. what what the boffins would call circular, right? You're, exactly. You're taking your potash from the wood fired ovens. Yeah. It's going back in. The kitchen waste is going in, and it's going around. Yes, yes. And then we grab um from a really great mushroom supplier, Aura Mushrooms up in Mungafai. We take all their um their their medium that they grow the their mushrooms in, and that fungal element to the soil is really important. And so we sort of, we have this combination of potash, which is sort of like the potassium, when you look at fertilizer, NPK, the, the K part is potassium. And thousands of years ago, humans would burn wood in pots and, and, and use the ash to, that was their fertilizer back in the day. So at Ahi, we have the fire and I'm like, man, we're chucking all this ash out and let's, you know, make potash from it. And so, and it's, it's you know, we, we pick twice a week, but just... You say that sounds all like, you know, great, we'll compost everything and it's all beautiful. But man, when you're trying to like keep uh, kitchen waste in a restaurant for a couple of days until it until it gets picked <laughs> up and it's quite warm in there and you got it in buckets and it actually, the kitchen's so warm and it's in a sealed bucket, but you can still you know, smell it a little bit. And But the fermentation and the breakdown process has started, which actually advances the composting, but it, you know, but it's, you know, you need to chuck it in your car and you've got to drive out to Patamahoe and, you know, you got you know, compost juice in the back of your vehicle. And yes. So it's, you know. Not as glamorous as it no, sounds. No, no. And then you're picking vegetables in the rain and yeah. um, it's freezing cold. We've got a great team out there, actually. I want to ask you about foraging. Um, uh, as I say, I was at Ahi not too long ago and, and you had a great young Kiwi chef there based in Tassie, Annalise Gregory, and she was waxing lyrical about foraging and she's obviously doing a bit of that in Tasmania. But she let slip that you do a bit of it yourself. And I think I might be making this up, but was it the kawakawa you'd been getting in the Y-Tax or something? Yeah, what, yeah. I mean, What do you forage for? Um, and give me a, I mean, it's so, very fashionable at the moment, but it's obviously yeah. a real, um, an art. You've got to know what you're doing at some level. Yes, 100%. Yeah. So kawakawa is easy. It's everywhere. And um, you know, you can do do all sorts of that. We actually put it through our sourdough and it's really got a beautiful medicinal flavour. You can sort of wrap butter in it and age butter and um, and things like that. And it's obviously got a got a huge um, Māori traditions around um, Murungo, the, the, the uh, traditional Māori medicine, which is really interesting. And But, you know, there's another little fern that we, we love ha- like taking and that's, um, again, you've got to be careful when you go in the bush and take stuff because you don't want to take too much. So it's... Um, and so it's it's sort of like tricky to harvest things, especially in the white tax, because you know you, you you just don't want to 
you know, go and clean something out. Yeah. But there's a little fern called Huruhuru Whenua, which is sort of, um, um, it's, it's, it's just amazing. It's a beautiful fern and you just take the young little um, piece before it un, un, unravels. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of weeds like puha. We, we forage a lot of that, a lot of chickweed. Um, right now it's the sorrel, the oxalis. Oxalis is so delicious. Like it tastes like lemons, you know, and it's in everyone's gut. It's the bane of a gardener's life is oxalis. Mm. And now um, I have hardly any, any of it because I take it to work or I give it to my chickens too. But, you know, that's a real easy one for people to pick. Nasturtium is another one. So it's sort of a mix of introduced weeds into New Zealand and, and a little bit of stuff in the bush. Let's do a few quick fires. Um, your favourite chef that's not you here and, and give me one abroad as well. Um, favorite chef in New Zealand. I just, uh, what am I going to say? I'm going to, um, I don't know. I really love Sid Sarawat and, and mm -hmm. Michael Meredith. I think they're mm -hmm. both wonderful. You would have worked with them? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, not, not, I've done, I've, I'm, I'm obviously friends with them. Um, I think they, there's very different cooks to me and I really love eating their food. You know, going out for dinner is a bit of a chore when you're a chef because, you know, you, you spend so much time at work you, when on your days off, you don't want to go out for dinner as well, but I've always really enjoyed eating their food. Abroad? I think uh, overseas, I mean, I just love um, Brett Graham, who's an Aussie guy, but he's in, in London at the library. He's, he's phenomenal. That's, I did work there and it was probably the restaurant that I, I learnt the most. Other inspiration like chefs that do well that are not sh really chefs anymore but still in the industry like Andy Cooks, mm. uh, Andy Herndon. Mm. And so there's other people out there that are, that are doing stuff outside the kitchens that really inspire me. And so I've seen what, what Andy Herndon's doing on his, on his YouTube and stuff and I'm like, wow, it's super amazing. Mm. Um, so yeah, that probably. Um, Favourite restaurant here and abroad? Uh, favorite restaurant, let's say I'm going to hurt someone's feelings. Yeah, a lot of pressure on that. Or just um, a good one that you'd be like, you'd just say, yeah. What was the best meal I had recently? The, you know, um, I had a really great meal at Onslow. Mm. Josh, let's say Josh Emmett's place and, and Glenfile, the head chef, there's very good. So I had a, had a brilliant meal there and real classy. It was, we had a great time. You know, when you have a meal, it's sort of not just about the food and um, yes. I know I know a lot of the staff there, and they really looked after me. And, and I was here with my wife and my my brother and sister in law, and we just you know had, just had a really brilliant night. And I think, you know, when you think about a dining experience, what, what I, I want to think about like is it memorable or not? Yes, you know what I mean. And that was just such a memorable night, and I had some really yummy food and a really good time. So that was really and overseas. Awesome. You're out. You can be anywhere in the world. Um, Where are you going? One night only. I'd go to Eleven Madison Park and. In um, New York. Well, I think that's where um, Andy Cook said as well. Did he so say that? Go, yeah. Oh, shit. It must be good. Um, what's next for you? You know, I think I'm just going to probably consolidate for a while. We opened three restaurants last year. Um, COVID has sort of been, was, I mean, there's always in the downtimes opportunities and to expand and stuff like that. And I think once we sort of see how this financial situation in New Zealand's Obviously, we're at the coalface of the economy in restaurants. And mm. and so, you know, we're some of the first people to suffer if, if times are not good um, because, you know, dining out in restaurants is not essential. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, and so I think, and I'm in a stage where we've expanded quite rapidly and I'm like now just taking stock. And so I'll, I will do more stuff, but I think I just want to like 
dive into the the places that we do have and really now I've had a bit of bandwidth to sort of like have a God's eye view of them. I can see a lot of stuff that I need to work on and and that I haven't had the time or the or the foresight or the insight to do when we open them. And so when I say consolidate, I just mean like, you know, go just go inwardly into those businesses and yeah. And I I just, there's so much more to it than, than just the dish and just the food and and trying to create experiences that people remember when they dine with us. And and if you look back, I think you're 43, you look back and you're 63, which you know, is not really old these days, but it's 20 years time. Well, what do you sort of, what would you have liked to have done? I'd love to, our New Zealand Food Story TV show, I'd really love that to be like a, an institution like Country Calendar is because when you think about it, oh, the, the show we do is, is very dynamic. You know, we, we, we look at the ingredient and how it's been harvested and we take it all the way through to the end. And I'd love to, um, you know, that New Zealand food story is just, it's in its infancy at the moment. And that's something that I'd really like to explore more and especially diving into the different regions of New Zealand and, and, and celebrating their differences, but also celebrating the ingredients and the people that, that, that are, that are, that are harvesting. These guys are the unsung heroes of New Zealand. And it's not, I mean, obviously, you know, for our economy, you know, these, you know, Fonterra and all these big companies that are, are really important, but there's a lot of little people that are doing amazing things and, and they're not trying to get the most volume uh, out of a square acre of land, they're trying to get the best out of it, yes. and that might be the best w- way to to grow, th- to look after the animal, but it also be how to, you know, find out a way to to gain the best product and also the best price for the. You know, it's important that we pay these guys properly. Yes, and and you know, so it's less about mass producing and more about it's more deep thinking. Yes, and I really. You know, I really love that about New Zealand, that innovation, that number eight why attitude to um, to producing ingredients is just – and then, you know, and it focuses on lesser known – like we're talking about sardines before. I mean, no, everyone, no, everyone catches sardines for bait. They don't think about eating them, you know, and yeah. so celebrating those ingredients that, you know, we need to – well, there's a challenge for you. I, next time I come in, I'm looking forward to seeing on the menu. I say, well, you know why that's there? Because we had a conversation. Look, the New Zealand um, food stories, it, it's a great show. I, um, it, it's got a touch of country calendar to it. And if I dare yeah. say so, less in a less structured, possibly more authentic way. You know, I thought, thought it was great. I, I was fascinated watching one. You know, you, you had the young guy, I think he was all but 22, um, in, in on the, the, the um, hill country um, sheep station. Yeah, you, you know um, him and his um, his female colleague who was about the same age. I mean, their accent was even different from in Auckland. You know, and I, I just know. think I'd forgotten about some of that. It's amazing to see these very authentic um, Kiwi stories and Kiwi people doing amazing, uh, amazing things. I've got to finish by asking you the questions we ask every guest. We call them general knowledge. If you could be somebody else for a day, who'd you be? Um, oh, I would be, um, <laughs> I don't know, I reckon Barack Obama or someone, someone Love like it. huge. Love it. What's the most embarrassing moment you've ever had? Think of it or a embarrassing moment. Oh, I think like I hate making mistakes, like hate it. And um, I'm just not in the business of making mistakes, but, you know, there's been a couple of times where I've ran food to the wrong table. Yeah. You know, chef runs the food out and he's like, 
you know, the head chef or whatever, and you're going out there and you put the food down, you do this big long explanation and they were looking at you, nodding their heads, and then you go to walk away, they go, this isn't, this is not our food. It's like, I'm a pescatarian. Yeah, dude. it's like, you, it's like you come to work and you've forgotten to put your pants on or something. Like it's sort of that really, that moment is something silly like that, I guess. If money was no object, what are the first three things you'd buy? Um, I would buy one of those Singer Porsches from America. They're amazing. Um... I'd probably buy, uh, upgrade the Harley, get another Harley, something like that, you know. Speaking of Harleys, well, I, know Harley, I love that. Um, I think one of the best cooking or chefing shows is, what are they, those two fat dudes from the UK oh, riding yeah. around a bike? I bloody love that one. That's um, a jaunt, isn't it? That and one? that's sort of there. Well, you know, it, it's, uh, could, could be you in sort of season seven of um, the New Zealand food story. Um, which famous actor would play you in the movie of your life? Brad Pitt. I can see that. No hesitation. Grower, grower, <laughs> grower, <laughs> grower, goatee, grower, no, goatee. Um, I could see that. I could see that. What's the strangest tradition in your family? Well, it's not really strange. I think the Manu competitions in the pool, probably. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, 40. you any good? Yeah, I, I can definitely crack a few Manus, but now you just, uh, you know, you had a couple of beers on a Sunday and you try to do do some Manus in the in the pool. You pay for it on Monday, don't you? <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. Um, if you could choose to stop ageing at any age, which would you choose? Definitely now, yeah. Love it. 43, prime of life. Ben Bailey, thank you so much for coming on Generally Famous. You've been listening to Generally Famous, a Stuff podcast. There's a new episode every Wednesday. You can listen to them all at stuff.co.nz slash generallyfamous or wherever you get your podcasts. In fact, if you follow us on Apple or Spotify, any of the podcast apps, in fact, you'll get the latest episodes automatically. Sounds good, right? Thanks to my producers, Chris Reed and Jen Black, and audio editor, John Rapier. I'm Simon Bridges. I really appreciate you listening. This pod took time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz support.